You are now tuned in to the Asian Madness Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things true crime, mysterious, morbid, and odd from the other side of the world. I'm your host, Jessica. Please sit back, relax, and let's dive into this week's topic. Before I begin this week's episode, yes, I would like to play one promo from one of my pod friends and a podcast that I personally enjoy very much. This is Jamie with Murderish. Hey everyone, I'm Jamie, and I host a podcast called Murderish, which takes you inside stories of murder and other creepy events. The first episode of Murderish lets listeners be a fly on the wall for a first-degree murder trial. The story is told from a juror's perspective as I was that juror. If you are a true crime junkie and need to know every detail, you'll feel right at home with this podcast. Follow Murderish on Twitter at MurderishPod and on Facebook at MurderishPodcast. And don't worry, this doesn't mean you're a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. The host, Jamie, aside from having a really great voice, is also really good at interviewing and has a variety of cases that I have never heard of. So if you're a true crime fan, I highly suggest that you check out Murderish. Alright, let's start this week's episode. Malaysia is a country located in Southeast Asia. It is the only federation nation in Southeast Asia, and it is made up of 13 states and three federal territories. Malaysia itself is divided by the South China Sea into two regions. In the east, we have the peninsular Malaysia, and in the west, we have the Malaysian Borneo. While the peninsular Malaysia borders Thailand and Singapore, the Malaysian Borneo borders Indonesia and Brunei. Malaysia is around 128,000 square miles, and its capital city is Kuala Lumpur. The population as of recent is around 31 million and is considered a multi-ethnic country, where half of its population identify as ethnically Malay, 23% Malaysian Chinese, 12% indigenous, 7% Indian. The official religion is Islam, and other religions include Buddhism, Christianity, and Hinduism. The country's main language is the Malay language, while English is considered the second main language. Historically speaking, the land that we know of as Malaysia has one of the earliest evidence of hominids from Southeast Asia, dating back to about 1.83 million years. Due to large amounts of bones excavated from this area, it is very likely that East Asians originated from Southeast Asia. Early civilizations showed that Malaysia was heavily influenced by Indian and Chinese culture, which includes religion and language. The Malay Peninsula went through different kingdoms and rulings, and it wasn't until the 13th century that Islam made its way to the Malay Peninsula via traders. But of course, no Asian history is complete without a few Western countries colonizing it and Japan invading it. 
First, it was the Portuguese in the 15th century, then the Dutch in the 17th century, then the British in the 19th century. Japan also invaded many areas during World War II, but retreated after they were defeated by the Allies. Moving on to modern times, the Malaysian Union took place in 1946, then restructured to form the Federation of Malaysia in 1948. Malaysia finally became independent on August 31, 1957, and in 1963 formed the Federation of Malaysia. Malaysia is mega diverse and basically a huge rainforest, housing many unique species and animals that can only be found in this region. This includes mammals, birds, reptiles, insects, and plenty other sea creatures. Malaysia is currently growing fast economically, with a GDP growth of about 6.5% annually. At this rate, it is estimated that Malaysia will become the world's 21st largest economy by 2050. They are also working hard in diversifying their economy by presenting Malaysia as a travel destination. One of its most popular structures includes the Petronas Towers, the tallest twin towers in the world. Malaysia is pretty perfect for anyone looking for the entire adventure package, as in city, rainforest, ocean, mountains, culture, and theme parks like Legoland. Man. I've come to realize how difficult it is to research information on these countries and then attempt to give a very, very brief summary. Most Asian countries are so multicultured and have a very long and diverse history, so I'm very, very sorry if I may have missed out on some important details. I'm also aware some of you aren't here for history or geography class, but sometimes it's important to have some knowledge and background information of the country. And know how it functions before diving into the case. Today, we are going to discuss one of the most heinous crimes in modern Malaysian history. I would like to thank listener and Patreon supporter Alison Lee for suggesting this case and for clearing some things up for me while I did my research. This case, in some ways, reminds me of the Ahmad Siraji case I covered previously in episode 4. This case is Pretty creepy and really gets me wondering. You'll find out why soon enough. Let's start from the very beginning. Mazna Ismail was born on January 1, 1956, in Kangar, Malaysia. As a child, she loved to sing and dance and even did water ballet, so it's really not a surprise that she wanted to be a famous pop star when she grew up. She worked hard towards her goal. And began to make small appearances with her singing. She married a man by the name of Mohammed Nor Afandi Abdul Rahman, whom I will refer to as Afandi from now on, also happened to be her number one fan. He was determined to help her on her path to stardom and was even willing to fund her career and her dreams. Quite a guy. It works out though. He gets to be with his idol and she gets to be adored and have funds. She soon changed her name to Mona Fandi, which was said to be inspired by her husband's nickname. The couple worked hard, looking for all sorts of opportunities, and even made an album titled Diana. They did manage to make several television appearances, including one in 1987, which you can still find on YouTube. 
I will be playing a part of her song at the end of this episode if you want to hear her sing. Despite all their effort, Mona never did manage to reach the kind of fame that she had dreamed of. Like many artists who don't tend to make it in showbiz, she decided to call it quits and made a drastic career change. She turned to witchcraft, also known locally as Bomos. Not just her, though. She took up this new career with the help of her husband and their young assistant, Juraimi Hassan. The couple and their assistant mostly catered to the wealthy and the powerful, as in politicians and rich people, meaning they got rich real quick. It's kind of a cycle. Rich and powerful people go to her with the hopes of staying rich and powerful. And knowing they're rich and powerful, it's probably not hard to charge them a lot. They would probably find it very worth their money. I'm not going to give my opinion and tell you whether or not the magic is real, because sometimes, like beauty, it's really in the eye of the beholder, or in this case, the person asking for favors. As the trio got rich and famous, they were quickly able to purchase mansions and several cars. I suppose they weren't really shy about all their earnings. Okay, okay, I know. Oh my god, Jessica, get to the point of the case already. Alright, let's do this. In 1993, Maslan Idris, an assemblyman from the Malaysian state of Pahang, had been facing some difficulties in his political career. He was a rising politician in the United Malays National Organization Party and wanted to become more powerful. So, obviously, instead of working hard in your party and serving the people he should be serving, he decided to consult with Mona and her team. Most people, when presented with a choice, would rather find the easy way to achieve their goals. He was wealthy enough and was able to afford it, so Mona and her team happily accepted. The going price for his ritual would cost him about 2.5 million ringgit which is approximately 970,000 US dollars back in 1993. They divided the payment into two stages. Maslan would pay 500,000 ringgit up front and grant the trio 10 land titles as guarantee. Then after the ritual, he will pay the remaining 2 million. Maslan received two talismans that are guaranteed to help with his life. A tonkat and a songcock, which I found to be a cane, and a headgear that supposedly belonged to a previous Indonesian president. The black magic ritual was arranged to happen on July 2nd at one of Mona's house that was in a remote area in Pahang and was still under construction. Maslan was ordered to strip naked except for his underwear. He was then instructed to lie down face up on the floor. Mona placed flowers on him and on his eyes, told him in order for this ritual to work, he had to close his eyes. Once the ritual was performed, all he had to do was to lie there with his eyes closed and wait for money to fall from the sky. I mean, I wish. So what would you expect to happen next? Well, things escalated rather quickly. While Mona was doing her thing with Maslan lying there waiting for money to fall on him, the assistant Juraimi grabs an axe and freaking chops Maslan's head off. Yeah. 
It took him a couple tries, but he decapitated Mazlan. Then the trio proceeded to partially skin him and chop him into more pieces. Well, 18 to be exact. They took all of Mazlan's pieces to a store shed outside and buried all the pieces six feet under, then covered it with concrete. Perfect murder? Not so much. I would say it's a lot more difficult getting away with murdering a celebrity or a politician, or basically anybody with money and power. The trio decided to have a good time with their newfound wealth. They bought all sorts of new electronics, gadgets, jewelry, brand items. Mona even got herself a new Mercedes-Benz and a facelift. You would think they would want to lay low for a little bit, right? I found this to be very strange. So, when a high-profile person goes missing, people are bound to notice. Maslan had missed many political meetings and functions, and upon investigation, he had disappeared right after withdrawing a large sum of money from the bank on July 2nd. Maslan was officially reported missing around mid-July, and at around the same time, Jeremy, the assistant-slash-executioner, was also arrested for drug-related charges. He confessed to the murder a few days after his arrest on July 19th and even took police to the store shed, the exact location where they had buried Maslan's body. Mona and her husband were then arrested for being involved with the murder. This is such a strange case on so many levels. The trial for the three perpetrators were held on February 9th, 1995. The trial was seen by Judge Datuk Mokhtar Sidin at the Temerlo High Court with a jury of seven people. Under the Malaysian Penal Code, murder charges carry a mandatory death sentence. And so after only 70 minutes, the jury reached a guilty verdict, and all three were sentenced to death. When Mona heard the verdict, she allegedly stood up and said to the jury, I'm happy and thank you to all Malaysians. I'm not sure how she said it, but it could be interpreted as genuine or maybe partially sarcastic. This was one of the strangest cases ever because it was just very odd. For one thing, it was unnecessarily gory. If you think about it, they could have just done a black magic ritual for him and then take all his money. Then again, if they did plan to kill him, they also did not have to chop him up to pieces like that. Another odd thing about this case is that it made people fearful of witch doctors and their magic. Many people still believe that these rituals and magic was real. So after learning about how Mona Fandi and her crew were practicing black magic as an evil magic, the public became terrified. One more strange thing to note about this case. Mona Fandi's reaction and her entire time in prison, and even before she died, Every time she was seen in public or when the media was there taking photos, she would be seen dressed up with full makeup, posing, and with a huge-ass smile plastered on her face. Yes, I'll be posting photos of this up on social media so you can see for yourself. It's eerie. Maybe she was enjoying the attention, or she was just ridiculously optimistic. Either way, she did manage to achieve part of her childhood dream. She was now famous. The three of them even tried to appeal their sentence in 1999, but to no avail. Then they made a final attempt to seek pardon from the Pardons Board of Pahang, which was, as you would expect, rejected. Their execution was set to be carried out on November 2nd. 
2001, at the Kajang Prison. The three were allowed to meet with their family members one last time the day before their execution, and they were also given a last meal. It was Kentucky Fried Chicken. Major Gacy vibes right here. They were hanged right before 6 a.m. on November 2nd, and Mona's last words were, Aku takan mati, meaning, I will not die. Kind of spooky? Yeah. Their bodies were left hanging on the noose for about an hour before they were taken down, and all three of them were buried later that same day. On a related note, this case was the last case to have a jury trial. The jury system was soon abolished later. Some say it's because of how the Mona Fandy case was sensationalized, and the last thing people needed was the media sensationalizing cases as it can affect the jury's opinions. Once it is sensationalized, you will probably have a difficult time finding someone who has no opinion on this matter, and we all know how the media can lead us. However, this is not the end of the case. Allow me to tell you some other tidbits regarding this case that you might find interesting. For one thing, Mona's prison guards were quite terrified of her. She wasn't just your average prisoner. The crime she was convicted of was very gruesome, and she was believed to dabble in black magic, so people believed that she was capable of putting curses and making things happen. In an interview with Sergeant Aziza, Mona's last prison guard, She said she was initially scared to face Mona, but later found out that she was friendly and very kind. Mona always greeted the prison guards and was a positive person who was always reciting the Quran. She was calm, and the two of them would even spend time chatting about their families and sharing recipes. With Mona behind her prison cell, of course. The prison guard also learned more about the trial during her chats with Mona. According to their conversation, Mona was not initially found to be guilty of murder. If you recall what I said earlier, it was Jeremy who hacked Maslan to death. Mona's husband was also found to be guilty for murdering Maslan, but when the judge had intentions of releasing Mona because she did not directly participate, she refused. She allegedly said that if her husband wasn't released, then she doesn't want to go either. She wants to stay by his side, even in death. The prison guard Aziza concluded that Mona was a very faithful wife, foregoing freedom and life just to be with her husband. Mona was said to have had a few ex-husbands and children from previous marriages, and all of them stood by her during the trial. None of her family members believed that she took part in this murder. So the prison guard made an unlikely friend during her work hours. To her, Mona was different from the rest, and Mona's death even brought her to tears. Pretty interesting piece of information, indeed. Do you feel like she deserved the death penalty? Do you think she was even guilty? There were so many rumors regarding Mona and her black magic lifestyle. She was rumored to have the ability to fly, to change faces, teleport, live without eating, etc. When asked this, she simply laughed and said, "If I could teleport, do you really think I'd still be trapped in prison?" She does make a very good point. In a few other sources, it was rumored that a few people who were last known to have come in contact with the trio had gone missing since. It cannot be proven whether or not they had anything to do with it, but for now, it's impossible to know for sure. It was also rumored that Mona was trying to reach the highest level in black magic, 
so human sacrifices were necessary. It is unknown whether or not she was in fact practicing black magic, or if she ever sacrificed anyone to reach her goal. Two of her properties still stand to this day, and it's a hot spot for ghost hunters to visit to try to contact her or the spirits of the dead, including Maslan. A prison guard who was working at the prison Mona spent her last days at says that he constantly feels like he's being watched, and even feels like someone is constantly breathing down his neck. I don't know. Could be her ghost, could be his imagination, or it could be just a gust of wind coming in at random intervals. He also said he has heard whispers throughout the night. Capital punishment in Malaysia includes instances of murder, drug trafficking, treason, rape, terrorism, and basically all other crimes that result with death or intent to kill. In other words, there are many ways for people to get themselves sentenced to death. The country puts a strong emphasis on drug-related crimes because it is a major problem. As of recent, Malaysia has been trying to come up with other solutions to maybe replace capital punishment because of all the executions that have been carried out. Other countries have been trying to get Malaysia to adjust their standards, and Malaysia responded that they would keep their options open and continue to find more effective ways. Of course, no sensationalized case is complete without someone making or trying to make a movie out of it. All the way back in 2006, a movie was made titled Dukun, which basically means witch doctor. If you recall, in the case of Ahmad Siraji, the Indonesian guy who drank the saliva of his victims, he was also considered a Dukun. Anyway, although the film was made in 2006, it was banned right from the start for being too controversial. The plot is based loosely on the whole Mona Fandi case, and since it's a movie, it's a lot more intense. The movie was finally released nationwide in April of 2018, as in last month. Yeah, the movie was banned for 12 years and now it's finally out. So, there you have it. The killing and dismembering of a state assemblyman, and in my opinion, a very bold crime. As you may have assumed, this case brought a lot of negativity towards these rituals and witch doctors, aka Bomos. It was probably a normal occurrence for people wanting to seek witch doctors for help, but after this case, their popularity dropped by, um, a lot. Of course, they still do exist, but they are mostly found in rural villages. You decide whether or not you think Mona Fandi was guilty of murder, guilty of being an accomplice, or maybe completely innocent. Just remember, if it sounds like it's too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. Don't let greed get to you. Till next time. I would like to thank the following people for giving me really nice reviews. Mama D9 from the US and Mara C from Canada. Thank you both very, very much. I truly appreciate it. So as promised, here is a sample of Mona Fandi's song, the song that I found on YouTube. From what I gathered, this song is about a child yearning towards their absent mother. And it is unknown whether the mother is deceased or simply not there. But either way, I hope you enjoy the song and 
Well, I hope it doesn't get stuck in your head. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. Please help me by rating, reviewing this podcast. If you're on social media, please look for me under the handle Asian Madness Pod. If you have any comments or suggestions, do not hesitate to write me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com. I truly appreciate each and every one of you for being here. I am your host, Jessica. Till next time.